on a hot afternoon of May 10, 1931, some army officers, grieving the end of the reign of their lately deposed king, met in a clubhouse in the Spanish capital of Madrid and took to drink. They also took to song, playing the Royal March on phonographs, opening their windows, and blasting it out into the street. Passers-by, typical of Madrialinos whose families owned no land and swore no oath of loyalty to the king, were still giddy with the arrival of the Second Spanish Republic. The Republic promised a relief to the dire circumstances of their lives, as exhausted laborers or downtrodden clerks or henpecked waiters, a promise to dignify labor with recompense and banish the faint whispers of a hunger that never quite left them. That bellowing royal march was a haughty reply from the forces of traditional order that none of these promises would be kept. The army, packed with monarchist officers, would see to that. In the day's heat, fighting broke out between the Medrielinos and the army officers, the common people of the city against the armed emissaries of the landowners of the country. Soon, the violence spread across the city as the people of that city mobilized to strike against their enemies. The news of the riot shot through fresh veins of communication infrastructure to cities and even villages across the Spanish countryside. Fires alighted in thousands of ready hearts. They were out to assert themselves against the one institution whose injustice and oppression transcended geographic region or sector of employment. An institution that, unlike the buildings of the government, was largely left unguarded. So crowds gathered at the churches and convents that dominated the culture of Spain, where God's spokesmen consecrated as holy their unending suffering. Now most city dwellers and the poor of the villages, who had not inherited a trade from their artisan forebearers, were the children of peasants who had been driven from the land and into wage labor on farms or cities. These were the children who had made the terrible journey into the unknown. They had encountered a world starkly different from their lives in the villages, and from this new angle, the eternal truths of the church were exposed as the lies of an antichrist who worked to keep them in chains. Contempt for the church was not constrained to the laboring classes either. For the more educated professionals of the city, the church stood for medieval superstition that lay like a yoke around the neck of Spain. Whatever the source of disgust, the newly established republic provided a political outlet for generations of visceral hatred for the symbols, infrastructure, and above all personnel of the Catholic Church. So in the next two days, over 200 churches, convents, and religious buildings were burned in cities and villages across southern Spain. The crowds burned churches to display their loyalty to the Republic, which represented a path to the establishment of a true faith, a faith in the common people's fitness to rule themselves. They also acted, though, because burning churches was a traditional form of entertainment in Spain and had been since the 19th century, when the authority and credibility of the clerical class with the landless, was permanently shattered. Priests were corrupt and cynical creatures of the lords who had cast them off the land. If people were excited, burning down their houses sent a good message, and it was a damn fun time. The church burnings were important for the future of the, spoiler alert, short-lived Second Spanish Republic. The introduction of mass democracy to a population suffering deep immiseration and apocalyptic inequality, a population with no prospect of imperial spoils to ease the pain and provide social purpose, meant that political change was always occurring in the aftermath of spontaneous violence generated by unrestrained class conflict. Other Western European nations had developed strong central authorities capable of arranging the various carrots and sticks necessary to secure class peace. 
Incapable of competing with those other states for colonial markets, Spain needed to modernize its economy to assert its interests within the world capitalist system. The Republic would survive only if it could build the state capacity to channel the heat radiating off of this class conflict into economic productivity and away from cycles of ritualistic civic violence. Unfortunately, the Republic lacked any symbol capable of stretching across Spain's political divide because the last mystic knot tying the modern Spanish state to the glories of the Spanish Empire from the time before the intrusion of capitalism had just been cut. A month before the church is burned, on April 14, 1931, Alfonso Leon Fernando Maria Jaime Isidore Pascuala Antonio de Barbon y Habsburgo Lorena, a.k.a. King Alfonso XIII of Spain, departed the country for foreign exile. Municipal election results, which had seen huge anti-monarchical majorities in Spain's cities, coupled with waves of student strikes and a show of no confidence from his generals, drove King Alfonso from the throne. Liberal and socialist political leaders, who had come together the year before to form the Republican Pact of San Sebastian, seized the moment to declare a second Spanish Republic. Now you're probably asking, what about that first Spanish Republic? Well, it only lasted from February 1874 to December 1875 before being brought down by a military coup. In Spanish tradition, they're called pronunciamentos, or pronouncements, and they happen so often that they have their own special name. The military had been the final arbiter of Spanish politics since the Napoleonic invasion of 1809 shattered the ancient regime. The classes of Spanish society who placed their hope in the Second Republic, the liberal cosmopolitans of the urban small bourgeois, the organized urban workers, and those millennium-seeking rural proletarians were all united in their hope of seeing this republic withstand the test of time. Only through the instrument of the republic would Spain be delivered into the condition of a modern country while honoring the humanity of her citizenry. The military had stood by while Alfonso fell, which proved that, while it's a conservative institution, it was not existentially hostile to the Republic. They're waiting to see what will happen. But the reactionary character of the Spanish officer corps, which is almost entirely drawn from the ranks of the rural landowning class who saw the monarchs as the guarantors of their property and rights, meant that the army would always be a sword pointed at the Republic's throat. Unless the Republic built sufficient legitimacy across Spanish society that the military wouldn't dare challenge it. Spaniards had a Republic now if they could keep it. To that end, the political parties, which had been repressed under the regime of the dictator General Miguel Primo de Rivera that had preceded the Republic, sprung into action, sending organizers, agitators, and propagandists from the cities out into the Spanish countryside where half the population lived in villages of fewer than 5,000 people. For many of them, this would be their first encounter with politics as a participatory exercise. For generations, political power in rural Spain, where the population consisted mostly of small subsistence farmers and landless farm laborers who worked to bring in the harvests on the estates of absentee estate owners, had been held by bosses called caciques. The jobs of these caciques was to harmonize the interests of the political parties in Madrid with those of the local landowners, dispensing patronage and threats of violence to secure the bulk vote 
of a population who largely suffered under what are essentially medieval social conditions. Now, the advent of mass communication in the form of film and radio, the transportation revolution of automobile travel, and the development of modern working-class parties and trade unions meant that the poor of the countryside became, for the first time, modern political subjects. The Socialist Party and its affiliated union, the General Union of Workers, which in Spanish acronym is UGT, built Casas de Pueblos, or Houses of the People, in these villages that served as organizing hubs to rival the political clubs of the landowners. Now, in these Casas de Pueblo, organizers showed movies, gave lectures, and coordinated labor actions. For the landowners and middle classes of the villages, this was an invasion of interlopers with heads full of French liberalism and Jewish Bolshevism, creating social conflict where before there had been placid harmony, all to the end of destroying everything good and lasting about Spain. Now, to the poor farmers and landless laborers, this was an opportunity to grasp their own destinies and assert their dignity in the face of generations of misery and oppression. Of these two perspectives, the poor one, at least, had the benefit of clarity. The comfortable lives of the professionals and propertied blinded them to the fact that Spain's future health depended, above all, on the reform of agriculture and land tenure. Spain depended on agricultural exports for the bulk of its economy, and Spanish agriculture was among the least efficient in Europe. If Spain continued to languish under depression conditions, the republic would lose any popular legitimacy. Lacking capital to invest in industrial production and lacking the administrative capacity to enforce higher production at gunpoint, the government would need to boost the fortunes of the rural population to secure its future. More mechanization and efficiency in agriculture creates less need for workers, which pushes workers into industrial labor in the cities, hypothetically. So, in 1931, Spain had a new, untested representative government, an economy suffering from a cycle of underdevelopment and the effects of a global depression, and violent social conflict escalating at every level of society. Meanwhile, every other so-called advanced capitalist state in the world faced their own particular internal crisis brought on by the global economic collapse. For most of the 30s, the countries of Europe avoided open-class warfare through electoral and military improvisation. And these improvisations brought the continent to a perfect domestic and foreign state of tension. The quote-unquote Western democracies were seeing vast mobilization of workers through the electoral process, and the fascist states had suppressed their class conflict only by ratcheting up their conflict with other states of Europe. Everyone is holding their breath for the first thread to snap. That it was Spain who broke first can be explained by Spain's specific conditions of combined and uneven development and the fundamental inability of the liberalized Spanish state to reform the basis of their economy, agriculture. Charting the road to the Second Republic and thus to the Civil War begins with this question. To this point, the story of the failure of Spanish agricultural reform had also been the story of the failure of the Spanish liberal project. So Spain was the first early modern European hegemon. But the elites who made up that hegemony, 
the military commanders who were granted royal authority over land and people in exchange for military support of the king. Those people, the same ones who had first made the reconquest of Iberia and then the conquest of Latin America, would be the ones who ended up breaking that hegemony. The other powers of Europe, forced to reorient themselves to check Spanish power or be destroyed, unleashed within their own countries social forces that transformed their social structures. But there was no force within Spain that was powerful enough to challenge the authority of those local landowning elites, and the transformation to capitalism that defined Northern Europe was forcefully resisted in Spain. As a result, Spain gradually lost diplomatic and political influence until by the mid-18th century it was a second-rate power. The reformer King Charles III attempted to rouse the Spanish nobility from its self-satisfied slumber, but he was broadly defeated by the elites in the New World and the Old, who were able to effectively defend their prerogatives. It took an invasion from Napoleon's energetic, dynamic French First Empire to shock the Spanish elite into motion. Now, as resistance to French occupation grew, the struggle created leaders who saw the awesome social power unleashed by political liberalism in France, power sufficient to sweep across their borders and dominate their country. And they began working to liberalize Spain in the French model so that they would more effectively be able to compete with France and keep France from kicking their door in whenever they felt like it. But with a rural population that was illiterate and politically inert, and an aristocracy that was fat and self-satisfied, and a bourgeois that was almost non-existent, liberalism lacked a popular constituency. It would emerge within the organization that had to most suffer the consequences of this Spanish stagnation, which is the military, the guys who actually got their asses kicked by the French. And they thought liberalism was a solution to getting their ass kicked all the time. By 1820, the weakness of the central government had inspired independence movements in all the colonies of Central and South America. In Cadiz, in southern Spain, which is Spain's principal Atlantic port, officers and conscripts were mustering for deployment in the rest of colonies. Suffering the irregular pay, bad and inadequate food, and the prospect of malarial death in the jungles of the New World, the soldiers mutinied. It was from this nucleus of radicals that eventually came a demand. The institution of the liberal Cadiz Constitution that had been drafted during the French War by liberal army officers and was never recognized by King Ferdinand. French military intervention had spawned Spanish liberalism, and it was a French military intervention that squashed it three years after the Cadiz mutiny, when the restored French Bourbons sent the 100,000 Sons of Saint-Louis, a military formation, to overthrow the Spanish liberal government and reinstate the absolutist rule of their cousin Ferdinand. So the Cadiz mutiny unleashes the forces of liberalism in Spain. But in so doing, it also dooms it because it's the mutiny. It is the Cadiz mutiny that destroys the crown's credibility in Latin America and made defending the Spanish government more and more untenable for New World elites. And so that meant that soon after the Cadiz mutiny, the colonies were all able to affect the pretensions of their independence. Without the ability to displace exploitation onto colonial lands, liberalism could not gain social legitimacy, and the rational organs of market-based administration prized by liberals would struggle to take hold. So Cadiz dooms the Spanish Empire, and without an empire, you cannot 
peacefully impose liberalism on a pre-liberal's uh, subjectivity. So the liberals get their next bite of the apple in 1833 when Ferdinand dies without male issue. He set aside the Salic law that said only sons could rule and allowed his eldest daughter Isabella to inherit the throne. And the dead king's younger brother Carlos, pointing to the tradition, disputed the succession. Naturally, around these culture war poles, the liberals ended up supporting Isabella, while Carlos led an army made up of the fiercely reactionary, small-holding peasants of Navarre, a former kingdom in its own right in the foothills of the Pyrenees bordering France. So we've talked about the exploited landless laborers of the South, but that did not define the condition of every farmer uh, in Spain. In Navarre, you have a tradition of self-sufficient, small-holding peasants who are able to make a life for themselves on plots of land sufficient for their family to work, which means that they don't have to hire themselves out as laborers and they don't have to hire laborers. So the notion of a rural idol is real. They, they live the rural fantasy of what feudalism is supposed to be. And so they see uh, liberalism as a direct challenge on a social order that to them is the very mind of God. It is God's will on earth for the world to be like that. And so it's these guys who are sort of like uh, Spanish Spartans. They fight on behalf of God and the eternal Spanish values that they associated with their independence and prosperity and against this godless foreign imported liberalism. And those guys are the shock troops of what becomes known as the Carlist Army, which fights a nearly decade-long war with the liberal Spanish state. So without colonies and with a stagnant quasi-feudal mode of production dominating Spanish agriculture, Isabella's liberal regime lacked the funds to fight the Carlists. There were, though, 10,000 liberal British volunteers. That This is a, a way to remind you that at one time, liberalism was a fighting faith. And one of the groups that fought on its behalf were 10,000 uh, British liberals who were so into uh, John Stuart Mill that they were willing to die at the end of Carlist bayonets. Well, they weren't sufficient, though. They weren't going to do it by themselves. To raise money and to bring market forces to bear in the countryside, the liberals finally brought the Reformation to Spain by forcing the sale of lands held by the Catholic Church and by municipalities. Now, this uh, has the added benefit of reducing the social power of the church, which existed as an instrument of landowner dominance across the country. A mark of that power is that in exchange for allowing all these lands to be sold, the church was guaranteed continued control of education and cultural life in Spain, and the clergy were given permanent government pensions backed by government bonds. So they were essentially bought out of their share of Spanish land. Carlos War was eventually won by Isabella's liberal forces, and after winning, they did the same thing to the Carlos that they did to the church, which was buy them out. The Carlos officer corps was absorbed into the Spanish army, and pensions were dispensed in the same way that they were to the clergy. But that transformation of Spanish agriculture they were hoping to go along with it did not follow victory. So the lands had been sold to the highest bidders, 
who are usually members of uh, Spain's thin strata of bourgeois capitalists. Now, the regime had hoped that they would bring modern agricultural methods and markets to the countryside. They would bring a Protestant work ethic to the countryside and do the same thing there that had happened to the English countryside centuries earlier. But the thing is, rural Spain did not have the robust credit networks or infrastructure that would have made reinvestment in new crops and the purchase of machinery worthwhile. What it did have, though, was a huge overabundance of cheap labor. A lot of landless workers called braceros who were totally at the mercy of the landowners. So with labor that cheap, it was a much better proposition for these landowners to just act like the old landowners, which is use cheap labor, do not do any improvements or innovations in efficiency, and just take a bigger and bigger share of their uh, labor. Just hyper-exploit the peasantry. What's the point of uh, investing in something where there's a limit to how much you're going to ever be able to marketize a country where market structures haven't been built? So the new landowners start acting like the old landowners. They spent the surplus created by their tenants and hired laborers on magnificent villas and in conspicuous consumption in the casinos and theaters of the provincial capitals and in Madrid most of all. The shrinking aristocracy was able to expand itself by offering titles to these new neighbors. And the economic transformation in the countryside stalled out. But that doesn't mean that the sale of church and municipal lands didn't have a profound effect on Spain's uneven capitalist development. The Mediterranean Levant of Spain, most of the land in the regions of Catalonia and Valencia, are rich and well-watered. Crops of wheat, olives, and grapes could be harvested three times a year some places. Medieval Catalonia had been a thriving merchant kingdom, and in the 19th century, the proceeds of wine and wheat exports helped provide investment capital for a textile industry. Industry requires labor, however, and due to the richness of the soil, Catalan farmers were relatively prosperous and happy to stay on their land, free of the domination of an employer. The sale of church and municipal lands didn't change their attitudes. But the situation was very different in the west and south of Catalonia, in the interior regions of Andalusia and Estramaduras, which is an unforgiving landscape whose name derives from the Latin for outermost hard. It is a badass region which had an overproduced warrior caste who ended up making up a large number of the conquistadors of the New World, including Cortez and Pizarro, hard men making hard times in the New World. There, water was scarce, the land was parched, and many areas might see a successful harvest once every three years. Farmers were poor, margins of survival thin, and they were dependent on access to common lands for grazing. The sale of this land had an instant dramatic effect. The case of Seville is instructive. This capital of Andalusia had been coated in gold during the high water mark of Spanish imperial power, but the gold that didn't cover the city's domes and columns passed right through to Genoa to pay back the loans taken out by the king to fund fruitless wars of conquest and occupation. The countryside, meanwhile, languished. When church and municipal lands were sold and capitalist property relations were extended there, lands that had once belonged to 6,000 different families were concentrated into the ownership of only 400 families. Those dispossessed were forced to sell their labors to the new landowners, whose vast Disconnected estates were known in the Roman style as latifundia. There were vastly more free hands than work for them to do, so rural farm laborers, braceros, often went unemployed and unpaid for half of the year. They survived from their meager wages, odd jobs, and the proceeds of personal gardens. For those who refused this life of enforced idleness, there was another option. 
moving to Barcelona to work for wages in the budding textile industry. In this way, the land sales indirectly helped expand Catalonian industry by expanding the supply of wage laborers, and a rural and urban proletariat began forming in a swath of Spain running from the southwest to the northeast. A la huelga, no vayas a trabajar. The Spanish crown, through the institution of the Inquisition, had assiduously persecuted any hint of Protestantism under their domain. The Inquisition's members were appointed by the king, not the pope, and constituted the only nationwide extension of royal authority following the completion of the Reconquista. And they were more than happy to light up a fucking heretic. But where Martin Luther had failed, Adam Smith succeeded. With the land sales, Isabella's liberals finally began the process of liquidating the wealth and social influence of the Catholic Church, which is the start of capitalism wherever it occurs in Europe. And this is what the Carlists of the North were taking up arms to prevent. From the immiserated peasants of the South, life was marked by poverty, hunger, and the arbitrary oppression of the landowning class. Their oppression was carried out by two institutions that represented landowner will. The Civil Guard a national paramilitary police force that kept a landowner-friendly version of peace in the villages, and the other, of course, the Catholic Church, whose priests used the language of God to justify the persistence of misery. The new rural and urban proletarians broke violently against the authority of the church. But since 300 years and a scientific and industrial revolution had intervened since the beginning of the Reformation, they didn't turn to the Bible to understand their new position in the world. They turned to Darwin, Proudhon, and Bakunin. In the stagnant villages of Andalusia and the teeming, decaying slums of Barcelona, a new understanding and vision of the world was emerging through the violent collective encounter between these feudal subjects and modern capitalism. What they understood was that the god of the church was a lie, a fairy tale to enforce quiescence to a regime of perfect tyranny where life existed at the whim of the employer. This arrangement had been bad enough under feudalism, but there, there had been a relationship between people and the land that only an act of God, not man, could sever. There were mutual chains of obligation between vassal and servant. Now, the church stood by while they were thrown off the land, severed from all social ties, and into permanent subjugation, and they called it God's will. According to the church, obedience to one's masters grants a reward of eternal love and happiness in heaven. And that's a heaven that rational inquiry and collective breakthroughs of modern science show are fraudulent. But the love, the sacred presence that suffused the experience of village and family life, the laughter in the face of suffering that heaven represented on earth, that had been real. It was real and could be made real again. The native Puebla, the medieval village, Cooperating in harmony for the good of all, absent lying priests, thieving merchants, and thuggish landlords, was the only paradise worth seeking. This imagined horizon of a perfected rural utopia is what they squinted to see when enduring the humiliations of rural idleness and suffering the physical and spiritual exhaustion of factory labor, when they compared the past of real and imagined harmony with the discordant present they found themselves in. So 
So being largely illiterate and socially discombobulated, it took time and the intervention of motivated foreigners to give a shape to this new peasant faith. In 1868, a man named Giuseppe Finelli appeared in the budding textile manufacturing hub of Barcelona. He was a disciple of the Russian anarchist Mikhail Bakunin, who was at that time competing with Karl Marx for preeminence in the first International Working Man's Association, which was the first attempt to create a coalition of labor groups and parties across Europe and the New World. The process of traumatic dis- and re-enchantment going on in Spain was going on all across Europe, and the association was an attempt to bring the national working class movements into cooperation with each other. Marx and Bakunin represented different approaches to the question of what is to be done by the men and women who were tasked with doing it. Marx, not coincidentally the son of a civil servant from the industrializing Rhineland of industrializing Germany, thought the workers would have to move through the political and social institutions developed by capitalism in order to transcend it. Bakunin, not coincidentally, the son of noble landowners in Russia, which at this period was a still feudal and overwhelmingly rural country where the peasant village still stood as a model of potential social harmony, well, he saw these institutions as prisons to be avoided and fought against. The people would collectively and spontaneously transcend and displace the instruments of social oppression and create a free and independent association of producers. The trust and love of everyday village life used as brick and mortar to build up non-coercive mechanisms of production. Now, Marx's ideas spread among the former artisan class of the advanced capitalist states like England and Germany and France, who viewed encroaching capitalism as a threat, but possessed the skills and tools to bargain with capitalism from a position of relative strength, relative to these dispossessed peasants anyway. In the south of Spain, where Catholic monarchs, local elites, and the New World gold had stymied capitalist development, and the new proletariat was forced into an abject relationship to capital, Bakunin's message found greater purchase. And Bakunin's disciple, Finelli, who spoke no Spanish, gave French-language lectures in Barcelona and there found a ready audience for his message. Now, the first people to hear this message were the alienated and literate of the city, school teachers, students, and printers. And soon the message spread to the factory floor. Traveling prophets of what would eventually be known as the idea went from village to village like medieval friars. They told the people that the simple village contentment that wove a thread through generational memories of rural life could be the model for a whole new way of being. The state, the church, the owners, the civil guard were only obstacles to the realization of heaven on earth. These secular saints added to their message the propaganda of their own personal decency. They generally abstained from alcohol, meat, and any kind of carnality. They lived simply and generously. Now, compared to the often illiterate, often indolent, usually drunk parish priest, the sadistic civil guards, the corrupt paper-pushing bureaucrats of the state, and the vampiric bosses, these anarchist evangelists gained a social legitimacy deeper than symbols can convey. In 1872, anarchist laborers in the dry village of Alcroy then marched through the streets, parading the severed heads of the mayor and civil guard in front of them. The Spanish Reformation had its Anabaptists and its long, slow-motion peasant war. By 1873, there were 50,000 self-described Bakuninists in Spain, most of them in Catalonia. And these would form the nucleus of a movement that would come to dominate the cities and villages of both Catalonia and Andalusia. The apocalyptic anarchist horizon was best articulated by the theorist and physician Dr. Isaac Puente, 
whose writings would be hugely influential in the syndicalist trade movement of the 20s and 30s. Quote, there is no need to invent anything or to create a new organization. The nuclei of the organization around which the future economic life will be organized already exist in the present society, the trade union and the free municipality. Rather than the liberal state, it was the rural municipality of ancient origin which offered a way to, quote, the solution of all the problems of coexistence in the countryside. But elsewhere in Spain, the advent of liberal modernity and the fitful course of capitalist development brought different social forms into being. West of Andalusia, in the center of Spain, the core of the old Spanish monarchy were the provinces of Aragon and Castile, Madrid being Castile's capital and the capital of Spain. In the Middle Ages, the declining fertility of that already arid region led the feudal lords of old Castile to enclose their land and introduce sheep herds for wool export, which is pretty much what the what had happened in England around the exact same time, but lacking the same structures to push that process forward. All that happened in Spain was that in the short term, they boosted the riches of the landowners, drove the peasants off the land, and for the most part into the army or across the Atlantic to try their luck in the new world. But without a centralizing governing structure capable of directing those wolf profits into the rationalization of agriculture and industrial production, the sheep grazed the land dry within a few hundred years, and Castile was left parched and agriculturally unproductive. But thanks to this vent of emigration and military service absorbing the dispossessed, Castile maintained a class of roughly subsistent, poor, but crucially independent peasantry. Because they held the titles to their land, they still spiritually adhered to the Catholic Church and the idea of Spain in a way that the landless peasantry of Andalusia could not. For these peasants, Crown and Cross were the protectors of sacred rights, not the inflictors of their misery. Estramadura to the West was roughly similar, the trials of subsistence harder because the soil was even poorer. To the Northwest along the Atlantic coast was the sandy infertile region of Galicia, the last remnant of Celtic Spain, where, as in the center of the country, subsistence peasantry dominated. It was only to the east of Galicia, along the northern Atlantic coast, that Spain possessed the sufficient mineral resources to fuel any kind of industrial development. So while wine and wheat build a textile industry in Barcelona, the coal and iron of Asturias and the Basque country built a steel and shipbuilding industry in Bilbao, the capital of the Basque province of Biscay. And so it was the Basques, a distinct ethno-religious group with their own language, which is an isolate with no known connection to any Indo-European language, became the vector for capitalist development in Iberia. So as capitalism grew in Bilbao, it created a middle bourgeois population that filled the gap left by the religious verities of feudalism with the civic destiny of nationalism. Naturally, in a kingdom that had failed to develop a strong central administration capable of breaking down linguistic and cultural barriers, this nationalism adhered to the concept of Basqueness rather than Spanishness. The Basque region had the only big bourgeois outside of Madrid, and their industrial riches funded the creation of Spain's most powerful banking fortunes, arranged in the Dutch and English style as joint stock companies. 
The textile firms of Catalonia, meanwhile, were all mid-sized family firms. That means that while Catalan nationalism inspired the entire rank of the Catalan bourgeois from the big to the small, Basque nationalism was confined to the smaller bourgeois and the prosperous peasants with bankers who did business all across Spain hostile to it. Now, farther from the coast in the Pyrenees was the rogue Basque province of Navarre that we talked about. Another medieval kingdom, as Catalonia had been, filled with hardy but prosperous peasants, fiercely protective of their rights and the god who consecrated those rights. They'd formed the backbone of the Carlist armies who rebelled against liberal Spain in the 1830s. Fittingly, the part of Spain that produced the first real industrial capitalist economy in Spain also produced the first organized reactionary resistance to it. Now, migrants drawn to the industrial centers of the Basque region formed the first proletarian political forms in Spain. Along with the skilled carpenters of Madrid, where the building trade was the closest thing to industry, they were the most receptive audience for the Marxist conception of working-class organization that arrived on the peninsula a few years after Bakunin had. For skilled and semi-skilled workers able to extract from their employers wages above mere subsistence, the path of dialectical engagement with capitalism made intuitive sense. These people were the descendants of the artisan class as opposed to the landless peasantry and were able to engage in labor that gave them bargaining power against their bosses. So the Marxist notion of working through institutions to overcome them made sense because they had an experience of utilizing that process. So by the 1880s, in the face of government repression, there was a national trade union, the socialist one, the UGT, and a socialist party, which had a kind of a dual party membership. If you were in one, you were assumed to be in the other. Now, the driving force behind the creation of both of these institutions was a skilled printer from Galicia named Pablo Iglesias. And it's interesting to note that the first ranks of socialist and anarchist organizers is filled with printers whose literacy gave them access to political ideas outside of the constraints of the hothouse of Spanish society and gave them the ability to transmit those ideas to fellow workers. Now, throughout the 19th century, the liberals in Spanish government and the military had tried to push through institutional reform with an incredibly narrow social base. They had the urban bourgeois, but not the Basques or the Catalans, who were hostile to the centralizing impulse of the liberal government, uh, and they had the leadership of the military. But the rural bourgeois saw liberalism as another invasion of godless Frenchiness, and the largely illiterate poor were unaware of and apathetic towards the machinations of a government that never seemed to impact the eternal conditions of their lives. And so liberalism stood on the bayonets of the army. This led to a pattern of cyclical political stalemate punctuated by military coup, the result of a government lacking capacity and legitimacy to resolve conflicts. All the while, the Spanish countryside continued to languish while uneven capitalist development caused convulsive social change in the urban areas. The coup go-around of pronunciamentos eventually claimed Queen Isabella, who was removed from the throne in 1868. Years of instability followed, and that included the short-lived First Spanish Republic, Uh, And another Carlist war sparked by another military rising in Navarre. Eventually, a rough form of governing consensus was codified in the Constitution of 1876. It would be a constitutional monarchy under crowned head of Isabella's son, Alfonso XII, and it would have universal manhood suffrage, and it would have a constituent assembly named after the medieval Cortes. (laughs) 
So the animating mind behind the Constitution of 1876 and the guy who is most who most embodies the struggle to resolve the contradictions involved in modernizing Spain was a conservative politician named Antonio Canovas de Castillo. So while Castillo, he's not a liberal, really, because he is hostile to the overall liberal project, but he recognizes that liberals could be reconciled to a conservative monarchical regime if they were allowed access to the perks and privileges of political power. And Castillo, to that end, engineered a system known as the Terno Pacifico, or the peaceful shift, and it would define Spanish politics until well into the 20th century. And it was a coordinated and orderly cyclical transfer of power between Castillo's conservative party and the liberal party of a guy named Prajedes Mateo Sagasta. And this system was designed chiefly to divide political patronage in a peaceful fashion. And even though the 1876 Constitution codified universal manhood suffrage, the mass of the poor in rural Spain were apathetic, if not hostile, to politics. And their involvement was managed in the countryside by those local bosses, the caciques. And their methods were known as caciquismo. Caciquismo! So caciques used brute squads, which were uh, nicknamed the party of the bludgeon, to wrangle votes on election day. And they negotiated amongst themselves to divide political offices and spoils. And they also acted as intermediaries between their constituents and the Byzantine governing bureaucracy that was futilely attempting to extend the modern French method of central administration to a country that was still steeped in feudal social relations. So they served a purpose for everybody. They were the middlemen of a political system that had not yet reached the grassroots. Turno Pacifico and Casaquismo succeeded at blunting the liberal conservative conflict and ending the era of pronunciamentos. There was now more struggle between the factions within a political parties than between the parties themselves. Sometimes election results would be printed in newspapers the day before the vote. The parties maintained a vague ideological difference with the conservatives defending the church and the landowners and liberals seeking to empower the urban bourgeois and promote secularism. But they were also largely content to swap power and patronage on the top of a still deeply rooted system of rule that had not much changed since the reconquest. So Turnismo solved the problem of peacefully transferring power in this low legitimacy social context, but it did nothing to resolve the burgeoning class conflict in the cities and countryside, the rising sectionalism in Catalonia and the Basque region, or the persistent crisis in the rural economy. The power of regionalism and the weakness of the center meant that the government was unable to impose free trade as a stimulant to rural and industrial development, as it did in other Western countries. Instead, the regional powers, through their network of political operatives, pursued policies of maximum protection for their specific segment of the economy. So everybody is using their regional power to pursue their regional interests to protect their spot in the hierarchy, which means there can be no creative destruction in the Schubertarian sense. Instead, there's universal protectionism. Every industry gets protected. There's a tariff for everybody. And that guarded incumbent producers and failed to juice consumer demand. Without colonies and unable to raise taxes from an uncooperative landowning class, the state was at the mercy of foreign banks. As the turn of the 20th century approached, the Spanish economy resembled the economy of one of its former colonies in South America, an exporter of commodities to the West with a meager domestic market. French capital had built the railroads in Spain, and British capital had helped build the mining operations in the North. And there, the British mine engineers would swan around in pith hamlets, 
you might think that they were in Kenya or in India. The sharp decline in Spain's power was brought into stark relief by the Spanish-American War of 1898. The awakening American giant snatched Spain's remaining colonial possessions away with shocking ease. And this was after the Spanish had spent a fruitless decade in blood and treasure struggling to repress local independence movements in the Philippines and Cuba. They essentially loosened the jar for America to just come in and pop it right open. It turns out that a military that's built mostly around kicking one group of lawyers out of a room and replacing them with another isn't always the best to fight a stand-up war. It was an army filled with bristling, stiff-necked officers of aristocratic and bourgeois background leading ill-equipped, ill-fed peasant conscripts. Many officers in the top-heavy army pilfered material and provisions for sale on the black market. The disaster, as the Spanish-American War was known, caused some soul-searching among Spain's intellectual and political class, but, once again, the lack of a dynamic center to Spanish life prevented any of these energies from translating into reform. Instead, the Catalan ruling class became more agitated than ever to unshackle themselves from the corpse of Castile. They were being held back by all these lazy peasants in the countryside. Spain, at the turn of the century, was a country stuck between worlds. But at the level of the local village, life was a single world of outlandish poverty and obscene opulence. Two-thirds of the population still lived on the land. Life expectancy was as it had been in the year 1500. With a stagnant economy, the last colonial holdings gone, with the regional bourgeois and working class agitating for power, Castillo's turno system began to crack. The man himself was assassinated by an Italian anarchist in 1897. Assassinations, bombings, fitful strike action, these are the first expressions of cohering working class offensive capacity. And since it's still relatively nascent, a lot of it comes out in acts of individual spectacular violence. So many politicians got clapped at the opera. You, you show up at the opera, there's a 20% chance some dude stabs you with a penknife before the ovation. For King Alfonso and the old aristocrats, for whom imperial conquests were fundamental to their conception of what Spain was, the disaster of 1898 was a profound humiliation. But luckily for them, a new opportunity to enjoy vicarious glory soon arose. French expansion in Morocco had forced Spain to secure control of the North African territory directly across from the mainland. And in 1904, Spain and France officially partitioned Morocco into zones of control, with Spain occupying the territory directly across from the Iberian Peninsula. Once again, countries are pushed into destabilizing action by the actions of their competitors. There was no capacity for Spain to occupy Morocco, but if France was going to occupy Morocco, they had to occupy the part of Morocco across from Spain or else they would be flanked by a potential enemy. And so they committed to a spectacularly ill-advised, bloody, and protracted conflict in Morocco. But the military, defiantly unreformed after 1898, was soon predictably overwhelmed by the task set to them. But the commitment there was deepened by the fact that pretty soon they set up lucrative mining operations as well. So now sunk cost fallacy sinks in and there's nothing to do but pour more and more resources in there. And by 1909, there are 40,000 Spanish troops in Morocco. 
In late July of that year, the conservative Prime Minister Antonio Moras called up a mixed brigade of active and reserve soldiers in Barcelona to deploy to put down rebellious tribes. Now, the prospect of colonial service distressed reservists who would be pulled from their jobs that supported their families. And this action appalled the rabidly anti-militarist anarchist workers of Barcelona because one of the chief ideological tenets of anarchism is anti-militarism, discussed with the structures of military life, which were offensive to human dignity and independence. And they expressed themselves in a trade union called Solidaridad Obrera, which was inspired by the syndicalist movement in, of course, France, which is always going to serve as the prod for action in Spain. And they sought to turn uh, the organ of the trade union itself, not the state, not political parties within the state or any state institutions, the trade union into the social machine that would overthrow and replace capitalism. And in an echo of the liberal Cadiz mutiny of 1820, Solidaridad Obraria allied with socialists in the city to declare a general strike to resist the call-up. And what followed after the declaration of the strike was seven days of riots, church burning, and religious grave desecration that would be remembered as the tragic week. Eventually, troops from outside Catalonia were brought in who could be relied on to fire on the crowds, and a blood-soaked order was restored. Over 100 civilians were killed, and five people were executed for incitement. One of those killed was Francisco Ferrer, the founder of the modern school movement, which sought to introduce rational inquiry to the poor, priest-haunted children of the urban proletariat. This violent event left deep impressions everywhere. The police crackdown became a scandal that brought down Moraz's government. The anarchist experience helped move some of them to create the National Confederation of Labor, the CNT, an anarcho-syndicalist union that sought to organize people by craft within industries and organize from the bottom up with authority vested in the factory sections themselves and federated outward, rather than administered downward from a central committee as the socialist trade unions were. For the conservatives, what lingered of the tragic week were the grisly tales of churches burned and holy gravesites desecrated, laughing young girls dancing with the disinterred corpses of nuns. It was very metal. It was a very metal week. It would be a good name for a album or a band. In the aftermath of the tragic week, Spain got its most energetic liberal government since the fall of Queen Isabella. Prime Minister Jose Canillas attempted to reduce the power of the rural caciques and took on the power of the church by limiting the growth of religious orders. And for his trouble, Canillas was assassinated by an anarchist in 1912. The short-lived Canillas experiment did have one lasting result. It provided a basis for cooperation between the liberal bourgeois parties and the socialists. Both groups fought to modernize the Spanish economy, either to fulfill the promise of capitalism or transcend it, the class conflict inherent in that process was always going to push them apart. The thing that brought them together was that they both agreed on the need to break the social power of the large landowners and their social instrument, the church. For liberals, the church held Spain back. For socialists, it held Spain down. Either way, Spanish working class and urban bourgeois ambitions both depended on the church's role in culture to be drastically reduced. 
Rational inquiry was an effect of liberalism that even socialists and anarchists found useful and thought would liberate the youth of the nation and allow them to ascend new social heights. As the liberals and the left came closer over the religious issue, the right began to view both groups as different elements of a larger corrosive force destroying the country, a social contagion they referred to as anti-Spain. You guys are literally the opposite of Spain. For the Carlists of Navarre, the rural latifundists of the South, and their sons in the military officer corps, and the monarchist press, Spain, the Spain of conquest and Catholicism, was a pure and eternal thing. The endemic social unrest of the era was the product, clearly, of malign foreign influences seeking to undermine and destroy eternal Spain. The daily ceaseless pain of the poor could be heard only faintly at these heights, and thus could not be fully accounted for. What's the cause of this? Everything's great. It must be some other spirit that we must conjure. And of course, Jews, as always, figure in this theory, as they always do. But since most of the Jews had been f- driven out of Spain centuries before, there would have to be other more near boogeymen to be summoned. And a good one were the Freemasons. The Freemasons were mostly urban bourgeois people who were organized together to network socially and economically and to promote the sort of secular cosmopolitan liberalism that the right associated with the godless French Republic. Freemasonry was a way to secularly meet if you were part of the generation who had been disenchanted from the church and was being re-enchanted into capitalism. And the the Freemasons were a ritualistic gateway between those two worlds. And as a result, the right figures that they were secretly, because they meet in secret, controlling and directing anti-Spain towards the annihilation of Spain. And according to the right, the class violence of the anarchist workers was the result of a loss of faith that would not be ended by a changing of their conditions, but by re-Catholicizing the working class through state-enforced education and a paternalist moral reform movement. These benighted people needed to learn to love their God and their nation again. And that meant the ceaseless agitation of the secular cosmopolitan liberals had to be restrained. Shut the fuck up. You're scaring the hose. Stop talking about how God isn't real. You're freaking out these poor people. They're going to kill everybody. Unburdened by colonies, and therefore out of the European great power sweepstakes, Spain avoided the entanglements of alliances that brought the continent to general war in 1914. Interestingly, if you've ever wondered why the 1918 flu is called the Spanish flu, it's not because it started in Spain. It probably started on an army base in Kansas. It's called the Spanish flu because Spain, being the lone non-belligerent of the major countries of Europe, was the only country to not have wartime press censorship, and so was the first country to report cases of the flu, where otherwise it was being censored. So that was one result of neutrality. Uh, Another result of neutrality was a huge boom to the Spanish economy. Fortunes were made and thousands were hired to provide ships, textiles, coal and iron to the warring parties. Declining imports from the rest of Europe forced the government to fund domestic import substitution. Migrants from poor rural districts like Murcia and Almeria flooded into Barcelona. Millions of people accustomed until extremely recently to the languid pace and intense communal ties of the country village were introduced to the rapidity and alienation of urban living overnight. Employment boomed, but inflation cut into workers' wages. Mass culture reached them in the form of movie theaters that spread across Spain like flickering mushrooms and generated new forms of subjectivity. 
Infant mortality dropped, fueling a massive baby boom. So while Spain avoided fighting in World War I, though, it could only postpone the bloody social reckoning the rest of the country underwent. It could not avoid it. The social ferment that the war represented elsewhere was still happening in Spain. The rising expectations and population of the poor, the development of a mass political consciousness fueled by the war economy, the creation of new horizons of state and technological capacity, all of those could only be socially processed violently in the absence of legitimate institutions. violence began even before the Great War had ended. By 1917, three groups were independently pissed off at the conservative government. Junior army officers were angry at low pay and irregular promotions. The Catalan nationalists were seeking autonomy, and both the socialist UGT and the anarchist CNT had their ranks swollen with new members in the wartime boom and were seeking to test their new strength. With the officers and the Catalans in an uproar, the UGT and CNT attempted to stage a general strike, the fulfillment of the syndicalist promise of revolutionary unionism. But working-class institutions at this point were no more functional than any other institutions in Spain, and when those junior officers predictably turned their guns on the workers, it was only a matter of time until the strikes were broken. In Madrid, the arrest of the strike leaders ended things. In Barcelona, it took a week of street fighting. The longest holdouts were the striking miners of Asturias in the north, who were only eventually defeated with ungloved repression. News of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia hit Spain like lightning, sending electricity pulsating through the social grassroots. A bell had sounded. Somewhere, a mass of toiling workers and peasants had overthrown an oppressive monarchy, aristocracy, and church. It was possible. Redemption was at hand. In the Andalusian countryside, the years 1918 to 1920 became known as the Bolshevik Triennium, with waves of land seizures, braceros on strike, and battles with landowners and their civil guard lackeys. In Barcelona, a class war defined by strikes and lockouts spilled out into a running gun battle between anarchist militants and thugs hired by the Catalan Employers Federation. This time, which would later be called Pistolerismo, or Pistol Rule, saw over 800 deadly attacks on union organizers, employers, and police. The state came down hard on the CNT, jailing those of their leadership who were not shot down in the street. This decapitation of the movement left the initiative with the CNT membership, who were literally hungrier and more radical in their demands and vision. One of the things that shaped Spanish anarchism was the employer federation's refusal to make any accommodations to the workers, with the weak central government backing their intransigence. With no hope of carrots, the Barcelona worker felt from the state and modernity as a whole only sticks. In Madrid, 15 government ministries rose and fell between 1917 and 1921. Ternismo had broken against the rocks of regional and class-based revolt, but no political formation could assert itself amidst the ruins. The manifest incompetence of the state extended to its last colonial outpost as well. In 1921, a buffoonish general bungled his way into a series of ambushes by Moroccan insurgents who killed 15,000 Spanish conscripts and led thousands of captive officers away in chains. At this point, conservatives, liberals, and workers were aligned on one thing, 
the constitutional monarchy initiated in 1876 was a failed experiment. Enter General Miguel Primo de Rivera, the captain general of the army in Catalonia, who revived the Spanish tradition of pronunciamento in September of 1923. Primo de Rivera was from an aristocratic Andalusian landowning family, a veteran of the Moroccan counterinsurgency, and the military commander of the army in Catalonia. His proposition to the king, Cortes, elites, and the people of Spain was simple. It was time for this earnest political amateur to make right what generations of cynical professionals had made wrong. Unfortunately for Spain, he wasn't bullshitting. He actually was an earnest political amateur, not just pretending to be one, and he governed accordingly. Though King Alfonso once introduced him to King Victor Emmanuel of Italy as my Mussolini, Primo had neither the vision nor social base to achieve anything like fascism. His half-hearted attempt to build an official state political movement, the Patriotic Union, fizzled. His solution to Spain's problems were simple, if only fitfully effective. He extended the police crackdown on the CNT in Barcelona to the whole country until the organization was forced underground entirely. Meanwhile, though, he co-opted the more reformist socialist UGT by bringing its leader, Largo Caballero, into government and hiring socialist union officials to mediate disputes between employers and workers. But Primo could do nothing about the stagnance of Spanish agriculture or challenge the power of the rural bosses. For a while, this was masked by an economic boom that raised all boats in the early 20s, as well as a few successful government investments. Primo began a massive program of government infrastructure spending that put people to work and created a modern hydroelectric grid. He also oversaw the final victory over the Moroccan insurgents in the Rif War in 1925. But these triumphs were less impressive upon closer inspection. Unable to confront elites and raise taxes, the infrastructure projects were financed with foreign loans that fatally tipped the Spanish balance sheet. The defeat of the Rif tribesmen was only made possible by the timely intervention of the French because the rebels had overextended themselves and attacked French territory. Economic rationalization meant handing over government export monopolies to friends and cronies like Juan March, who collaborated with Primo to turn what was a tobacco smuggling operation into a legal tobacco monopoly. Primo's was essentially a vibes-based dictatorship, and one who lives by the vibe dies by it. By 1930, the Great Depression had crippled the economy. The value of the Spanish currency, the peseta, had dropped 50% over the course of the decade. Primo had antagonized liberal and student opinion by arbitrarily intervening in the legal system, though they hadn't been bothered too much by breaking the CNT. Primo also antagonized the army by intervening in a dispute about the artillery division's promotion schedule. Seems meaningless, but when Primo asked his generals for a vibe check for his status within the army, he failed. They told him that they would not support him. And so Primo went to exile in Paris where he promptly died, leaving Spain in need of a new governing institution. The years of dictatorship had only succeeded in deepening the fault lines in Spanish society. The CNT had been effectively outlawed, 
But in 1927, a collection of so-called affinity groups within the anarchist movement founded a vanguard activist organization called the Iberian Anarchist Federation, or FAI. This group didn't seek to lead the masses to revolution as the Bolsheviks had, but rather to prevent the bureaucratic structures of the CNT Union from stifling the revolutionary energies of the anarchist masses. In practice, what that meant was orchestrating local conflicts with authorities with the goal of provoking spontaneous uprisings that would eventually catch into general flames of rebellion. Meanwhile, opinion among respectable liberals and even military leaders was that the monarchy, which had indulged Primo, had outlived its usefulness. The same year Primo de Rivera went into exile, an abortive Republican military coup illustrated how tenuous Alfonso XIII, by this point, hold on the throne was. By early 1931, liberal and student agitation drove Alfonso out of the country, and the Second Spanish Republic was soon born. Managed democracy and benign dictatorship had failed to develop Spain or soothe its social conflicts. While long-standing democracies in the rest of Europe struggled to sustain legitimacy in the face of the Depression, Spain would try to build a legitimate mass democratic government from scratch. Good luck. Dubbed the Republic of Professors for the cast of its leadership, otherwise known as the Revenge of the Nerds, the Second Spanish Republic began as an alliance of liberal Republican parties based in the urban professional classes with the two leading figures of the Socialist Party, Largo Caballero and Indelico Preto, both of them given ministries in the government at labor and finance respectively. The shared mandate of every element of the new regime was to break the power of the church, the landowners, and the army over Spanish life while preventing the inherent violence of the process from overwhelming the political system. And then, as soon as they began, the church is burned. The government's response to the church-burning wave of May 1931 was considered by everyone who was already skeptical of the new regime to be criminally late and half-hearted. For the Catholic right, the Republic would always bear the stain of the anti-clerical riots. So, from the Republic's first day, the stakes are set at apocalyptic. The landowners, both large and small, saw the Republic as the Antichrist, set upon dethroning God and revoking their titles of ownership. Such a fate could only be conceived of as a descent into hell, especially given decades' worth of breathless, titillated stories in the respectable bourgeois press about Bolshevik Russia, where God and deed had been abolished and blood-soaked poverty now reigned. The anarchists, who opposed the Republic, but whose organizing and agitating was allowed by it, as well as the most embittered socialists, as well as the small and growing national and regional communist parties, all spoke for those who had experienced being God's favored nation as dispossession of land, fundamentally agreed with what the right was saying. They were out to depose God and redistribute the land. But for them, it was not hell being created on earth, but heaven in the form of the socialist project, which had materialized Christianity after the Enlightenment. The collective secular struggle for equality and justice could only be conceived as the highest form of life, especially given the decades' worth of breathless, titillated stories in the respectable working-class press about Bolshevik Russia, where communism had been declared and the holy work of building the workers' state gloriously continued. The attendant violence was deemed tragically necessary by the Marxists, a betrayal of freedom by the anarchists, but all agreed that Russia was the first battleground in a global class war that would soon come to their doorsteps. The liberals, the bourgeois Catalan and Basque nationalists, 
academics, journalists, lawyers, professionals, who represented those who tended to have no particular emotional relationship to the land one way or the other, who instead tended to work with symbols, insisted that this whole framework was hysterical nonsense. The Republic didn't stand for anything like that. Yes, the power of the church needed to be curbed, but only to allow for enlightened modern education to transform illiterate peasants into productive workers. Don't you want productive workers? Who They could contribute their intellect to their employer's bottom line. Everybody wins. They could boost Spain into the ranks of developed nations where the spoils of development could be distributed. If not equally, then rationally. Yes, the land would have to be redistributed. Capital investment and mechanization would have to be compelled. But that was only to advance the greater goal of a developed modern Spain. For the liberals, comfortably adjacent to the mutually reinforcing agonies of master and servant, the value of sacrificing immediate interests for the greater project of creating modern Spain was self-evident. But for those who struggled every day to ignore the rising protest of their stricken conscience on the one hand or their rumbling stomachs on the other, a sterile talking house Spain where real conflict was diffused into wind was a dire prospect even if it wasn't delusional. Trading dignity for safety until both had disappeared was a fate worse than death. Much better to suffer exquisite extinguishment in the existential combat which promised an end to suffering just as certainly as victory did. Now, the plummy British academics who dominate the English language historiography of the Spanish Civil War have a very hard time hiding their sympathies for the liberals, who they clearly see as the lone sane faction during this period, trying heroically to steer a nation of gibbering reactionaries and unhinged radicals towards the shores of modern democratic capitalism. In this view, stated or unstated, Modern democratic capitalism is simply the process of a nation coming to its senses. Now, from the placid shores of England, that logic is unimpeachable. There, the bloody work of imbuing deliberative governing structures with popular legitimacy had occurred at the head of the serpent of European capitalist development, not the tail. In England, the even bloodier work of building and maintaining a global system of commodity exchange sufficient to buy off the keenest edge of landowner guilt and proletarian hunger allowed real political conflict to express itself in colonial massacres and famines. Nothing in the heartland. You get to have your precious parliament and have your votey votes in the metropole. But Spain had no colonies, had lost her colonies. Her commodity exchange network was poultry. The brutal class war spurred by fear and hunger raged inside of her, not in far-off colonies. With economic depression racking the land and no internal system able to reform Spain's political economy from within, time would show which faction of Spanish politics was actually detached from reality. 